If you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, we're going to read from verse 9. We're beginning a, a series looking at effective living, living an effective life. And the way we want to look at that is by picking up on the whole area of breaking free from temptation. Now I know that it, in the end it's sin that we need to break free from because it's sin that enslaves us. If you resist the temptation, the temptation is not a problem. But we need to know how to resist that temptation, how to break free when temptation comes. And we're going to look at that in a number of different ways. We're going to look at breaking free from pride and cynicism, from dishonesty, from addiction. All of these kind of issues we're going to cover as we go through this series. And we're going to find that there are some things which crop up again and again and again. For one thing, I feel that as I've been preparing this, that as we're looking at temptation, it's good to realise that there are complexities in the issue and it's good to realise too that there's collateral in these things. It doesn't just affect you, it affects other people. And as you look at the scriptures, you see Jesus always gives specific correctives. So if you just keep those three words in mind, complexities, collateral, correctives, I think they'll be useful as we look at this whole thing of breaking free from temptation. Of course, there's that incredible verse which is so helpful when you're thinking about breaking free from temptation. I know I've told you to find Luke 18. Just keep your finger in that for the moment because it's just so important you know this verse as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says this in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And part of the way of escape is the provision that Jesus has made. So I think about the provision of Jesus as being his life laid down, his spirit poured out, and his advocacy for us, speaking for us in heaven, that advocacy which is accepted by the Father. So we see that there's that provision, but there's also the specifics that we're going to focus in. And in this first uh, session, we're really going to focus in on the whole subject of breaking free from pride and cynicism. Let's read those verses from Luke 18 that I've already pointed out for you. Luke 18, 9, I'm going to read to verse 14. Also, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and, and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As we look at this parable that Jesus told, I want us to note three things. I want us to look at the pervasiveness of pride. It just gets in everywhere. I want us to look at the the painfulness of the put-down. I mean, this arrogant man in the story, the way he treats the tax collector, we need to look at that. And then, thirdly, I want to look at the, the accuracy, the precision of the prescription that Jesus is bringing in these words. Because I think if we can get hold of that, it'll really help us in our personal lives when we're dealing with pride and cynicism. Now, I'm putting those two things together because they both come up in the story. It's not just about pride. It's about the other side of it, the connecting with it, of the cynicism that we need to put out. And if you're thinking, actually, this isn't my problem, the moment you say that, you've revealed that it probably is. I always remember a story that I heard a vicar preached his heart out on on spiritual pride. And uh, as he was standing at the door, shaking hands with everyone as they were leaving, one lady said to him, that was a wonderful sermon, vicar. It was such a shame that Mrs. So-and-so wasn't here to hear it. She really needed that message. And it just sort of brought home the point of spiritual pride. And it just so easily creeps in. So it's good, isn't it, to look at how we can break free from the temptation to pride and cynicism and live a life that's much more reflective of God's heart. And I think in looking at that, we're going to begin to discover some of the principles of living an effective life, breaking free from temptation. When I read this passage, I notice that, well, in a sense, we we all know what we shouldn't do, don't we? we? We know that we shouldn't do these kind of things. But there's something about the way that Jesus tells this story which just brings it home with a real forcefulness. You see, this this Pharisee was so blind. He was blinded by his own religious righteousness. It wasn't the righteousness that comes from God. It was a self-righteousness. It was about, oh, I fast and I do this and I do the other. And somehow that was blinding him to the real attitude of his heart. Now, when I say that one useful key to gaining perspectives in our lives is to think about complexities, I'm not suggesting to you that you've got to go away and make everything much more complicated than it is. But I've noticed over the years that there is a big tendency for people to make things out to be much simpler than they are. The kind of attitude where he says, oh, well, of course, it's just this, isn't it? Have you ever faced a difficulty in your life and someone has come up with such a simplistic solution that it is absolutely no help whatsoever? You know, they say, well, just praise the Lord anyway, brother. And, well, sometimes that is sufficient. But at other times, it would help if they realised it was actually a bit more complicated than that. And if the advice they gave went a little bit further, it would make a huge amount of difference. Do you know, I'm glad Jesus didn't just go around saying to people, praise the Lord anyway, brother. Praise the Lord anyway, sister. He'd got much more to say than that. And coming from heaven, he realized that the issues that we face, although I'm sure incredibly simple to him from his perspective, he appreciated that to us trying to deal with them, 
they could be incredibly complicated. And I want us just to start with that thought, that here is a Pharisee who thinks he's got everything sorted out. This is simple. I fast, I do this, I do that, therefore I am righteous. I, I have no problem in my life at all. And what we're really hearing is Jesus saying, it's more complicated than that. It, it's not just what's first appearance. Don't go through life with these great big assumptions. You've got to keep your heart open to what God wants to work and what God wants to do. Could be so much more than meets the eye. Maybe in our own lives, even that sort of religious uprightness is blinding us to some of the things that God want us to, wants us to see. This man thought that thanking God was humility. So often, I, I've, I've discovered now that people have this phrase, we thank God. You know, you say to them, um, I just want to say how much I appreciated what you did. We thank God. Now, that's great if that's really what is happening on the inside. But it's very easy, isn't it, just to use that kind of expression and yet to be basking in all of the praise we thank God that I am actually so wonderful, so great, so good, so efficient, so effective. And it's the pervasiveness of pride. It's, it's creeping in. If you like it, got in under the radar. Even when you think that thanking God is being humble. This man was thanking God. He was thanking him for all sorts of things. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I thank you, God, that you made me perfect. I thank you, God, that... Listen, you can thank God for everything, but thanking God is not enough to guarantee the humility of heart that God wants you to have. He's trying to work something in us. This parable in itself was quite an affront. It's part of the corrective that Jesus wanted to bring. Something else about this Pharisee. Did you notice the contrast? It says that he, he was standing now, there's nothing wrong in standing. You know, God wants to bring us to that point where we can stand in his presence. And sometimes, I know when we're thinking about humility, we always want to be sprawled out on the floor. Now, some people's idea of worship is that the, the longer you spend on the floor, the better the worship. You know, and if we were really worshipping, we were really, really, really worshipping, and the Spirit of the Lord really turned up, we wouldn't be able to sing, we wouldn't be able to move, we wouldn't be able to do anything. Well, I understand where that's coming from. I know when the Spirit of God came down and filled the temple, they weren't able to minister. I know that. But I also know that on the Damascus Road, when the glory of God came and, and shone all around the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul was, was knocked off his horse and he was there sprawling on the ground, what does God say to him? He doesn't say, oh, look at that. You know, He says, stand up on your feet. Stand up on your feet. See, God's looking for people in these days that can stand up in the midst of the glory. Anyone can fall down and, you know, sort of be overwhelmed. But God is saying, now I want you to stand. So there is a real place for standing. I understand the natural disposition. You, you fall at his feet. But even in the book of Revelation, when John fell at his feet as though dead, he's picked up by the Lord. As if the Lord's saying, I want you to stand in my presence. He's given us boldness of access that we might come and speak in his presence. All of these things are amazing. They're about God making us stand. 
But we must avoid presumption. We stand because of grace. Romans 5 talks about the grace in which we stand. Don't ever think that you can stand in your own arrogance because you may be standing there full of your self-importance, but you're not really standing in the presence of God. It takes grace to stand in the presence of God. And when you've understood that grace, you begin to see what it's meant in, in Romans chapter 14. The verse I really love. Listen to this, Romans 14, 4. I wish it was inscribed on all of our hearts. It says, Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. I want every believer today to stand up in confidence. But I want it to be confidence in the grace of God. I want to see such a a church in these days that even if the glory of God came down in enormous, uh, overwhelming measure to the point where we wanted to to just, just gaze and gaze on the Lord, that the Lord would still be able to speak to us and say, stand on your feet because there's a work that I want you to do. I love the Mount of Transfiguration, but they had to come down from the Mount of Transfiguration in order to deal with the the boy that was having those fits. And the father was at his wit's end because the boy was in such a state. We can stay up on the mountain and revel in the glory of God, or we can still keep the glory of God with us when we come down from the mountain and we can stand. I don't want to stand as this Pharisee stood. Do you know, I think that before you can stand the way that God wants you to stand, you have to fall. (laughs) You have to fall from that position of arrogance. In some ways, I'm quite glad that pride comes before a fall. Or let me put it another way, I'm quite glad that a fall comes after pride. Because that means that there's an opportunity for redemption. (laughs) Because if you come down, there's always the possibility of being picked up in a different spirit and in a different attitude. This Pharisee had problems in his standing. He was standing in his own self-importance. He wasn't standing in the grace of God. He wasn't standing as someone who on the inside was broken and was being lifted. He was standing in someone who was so full of himself. And there's something else about his praying, praying as well. Did you notice this? That as he prayed, it says... He prayed with himself. Amazing little turn of phrase there. He prayed thus with himself. There's no point praying with yourself. But when you look at what he prayed, you can see exactly why Jesus used that expression. It was all about rehearsing. I did this, and I do that, and I thank you that I'm not like this. I mean, God's not interested in listening to those kind of things. This was just his own verbal gymnastics. Let's get all of these things and sound so good. It's just so pervasive, this pride. And we need just to be prepared. And this is why I said, sometimes we need to think complexities. Maybe it's not what it looks on the surface. There is a place for examining our hearts. 
there is actually a place for coming before God and saying, Lord, you search me. You search me. I'm not advocating endless introspection here. I'm, I'm saying, why don't we just bring ourselves before God and say, God, you just show. This is what David said. You show me if there's any wicked way within me. Paul, his advice to us was, look, press on. Take hold of God for everything that was on God's heart when he took hold of you. And if in any way you're otherwise minded, God himself will show that to you. That great Philippian principle, we press on, we press on, but with that kind of attitude that says, and God, you show me, you show me if there are things that need to be put right. I don't want pride to pervade in my life. I just think that God has done so much. I want to be free from all of that kind of deception. We're so blessed we've got God's word. God's word is a mirror. James puts it like this. I think this is incredible and I do love the letter of James. I think it's so very practical. But he says this about the word of God. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of this word. This one will be blessed in what he does. He refers to this as the law of liberty, but he also refers to it as a mirror. Just a few verses up from verse 25 of chapter 1, which I read, it says this, verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror For he observes himself, goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. I've noticed it talks about man and not woman at this point. Because this is a man's way of looking in the mirror. You know, you look, oh, that do, and you wander off. And that's really what's being said. If If we don't look, we'll never discover what's out of place. If you don't look in the mirror when you comb your hair, everyone else has to look at the bird nest on your head all day, just wishing that you'd spent a little bit longer sorting yourself out before you left home. If you go with your shirt buttoned on the wrong button all the way down the front, guess what? Everyone else will notice all day, all because you didn't spend that extra minute in front of the mirror saying, Are the buttons in the right holes this morning? Now, some of us are past that stage where we need to worry, but I did preach on one occasion and and was completely undone when I saw that someone sitting in the front row was wearing two ties. Now, I'd never, ever seen this before in my life. was wearing two ties. And uh, I said to him, Steve, did you know you have two ties on? And he looked down and he said, My goodness, you're right. And what had happened was the tie that he'd worn during the day it had sort of gone round the corner, so he put another one on, on top. And he'd actually, was, I thought, if only this guy had looked in the mirror, <laughs> it would have saved interrupting my message. I wouldn't have suddenly been, Steve, you've got two ties on. That, this is really what's being said in this passage. Some of us, we just glance in the mirror and we go off and live our lives completely oblivious to what we've seen and everyone else is faced with all of our glaring shortcomings 
moment after moment, day after day, because we didn't take the trouble to look and put things right. But if we really get hold of God's word and we look into that mirror, guess what's going to happen? The reality of our heart is going to be reflected back to us. And when the reality of our heart is reflected back to us, this book is not a trial, it's a blessing. And when the reality of your heart is reflected back to you, this book becomes the law of liberty because you can continue in it and be transformed. So I'm just saying that don't have that simplistic attitude which says, ah, I know I'm all right. I fast, I do this, I do that. You know, I'm not like this person, I'm not like the other person. Come on, take a little more trouble. (laughs) Stand in front of God's word a little bit longer. Let the mirror reflect the reality back. Let God speak into your heart. Find out if you're standing in grace or standing in presumption. Find out if you're praying with yourself or you really are speaking right into the throne room of God. It's worth just being aware of the pervasiveness of pride. But I want us to also see that there is the collateral. Be aware of the collateral. If you want to gain perspective on your life, you need to think, well, there could be complexities, but there will also be collateral. You do not live in isolation. When you are being tempted, it's not just about your personal holiness being compromised, although that's, of course, a big issue. But everyone who falls has an impact beyond their immediate situation. And this is where the collateral comes in. You know, you think you can be pride on your, proud on your own, you don't realise that that pride is actually doing damage all around you. You might think it's just the Pharisee's problem. I mean, he was the one who was doing the praying. He was the one who missed out on God's blessing. He was the one who was full of arrogance, destined for a fall. But just suppose the tax collector had heard the Pharisee's prayer. Now, I don't think the tax collector did. I think the tax collector was so busy pouring out his own heart to God that he never heard what was being said. But cynicism can do so much damage. Why do I say cynicism? Because if you end up with a cynical attitude, you basically have got that philosophy which says nothing's right. Nothing's right. Everything's bound to go wrong. You know, you come along and it's great, but every silver lining has a cloud. It's that kind of mindset. There's always a negativity. It comes from a concept of everything's a dog's life, you know. That's where the whole philosophy comes from. It's, it's just not worth living, really. It's, life's a mess, you know. There's always a negative to every positive. And so you look on someone like the tax collector and you're dismissing him. Pride makes you dismissive of other people's success. You actually fall into that trap which is alluded to in Romans 14. If you start judging another man's servant, you're forgetting whose servant he is. He's not your servant. 
it wasn't necessary for the Pharisee to have any opinion on the tax collector whatsoever. The tax collector wasn't there for him. The tax collector was seeking to stand before God. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand because God is able to make him stand, even if you are trying to knock his feet out from underneath him. Which is exactly what pride can make you do in your cynicism. You just begin to start putting other people down. The pain of that put down. Now I know this tax collector didn't hear it, but so many people have heard things. Maybe you've not realised it, but there could be things in your life where you've been the victim of someone else's pride. You, you're examining yourself and saying, why did they say that about me? And in all humility, you're beginning to say, Lord, I need to know. So you're searching the word, is this me, is this me, is this me, is this me? There's a possibility it could be them. They might not be speaking the truth about you. They might just be coming up with their opinion. They might be speaking out of their great big inflated pride and treating you as nothing. One of the extraordinary things that happens in the world, and certainly happens in Christian circles too, it's something that the Americans call tall poppy syndrome. The moment anyone's a bit taller than anybody else, they have to be chopped down. It's the fact that we can't cope easily with other people's success. Jealousy comes in. Our pride wells up. We use techniques about being dismissive of people. Well, of course, you know, I mean, if they were really spiritual, then this. And, and that sort of cynicism begins to come across. We've just got to be so aware that there is pain in putting other people down. Now, that should make us stop and think. I'm not trying to get you to break free from temptation by putting the pressure on you and saying, now look, you've got to sort yourself out because you might think that's your private problem, but it's affecting other people. I think you already know that. But it's just a reminder that this is why it's so important to break free from temptation. Because it's not just a personal problem. The Pharisee might pray his arrogant prayer, but it's the tax collector that's being put down. And people get trampled underfoot. Maybe we've done that. Maybe we've done that. I'm sure we didn't ever intend to, but when arrogance creeps in, attitudes to other people go wrong, don't they? How was he looking at the tax collector when he was meant to be praying? In comparing ourselves among ourselves, we are not wise. Even if you're comparing yourself with someone who is, is apparently worse than you are, let me tell you another thing about cynicism. Cynical people can even be cynical about themselves. Have you ever met people like that? No, I'm never any good. No, no, I'm never any good. And you can think, oh, they are so humble. But sometimes you need to realise that it isn't genuine humility. It's another form of pride. In a sense, the Pharisee within them is standing there judging their life. <laughs> it's almost as if you're standing there and you're looking at yourself saying, well, I'm just not good enough. But that's pride speaking. Can you see how that can be? And it can be twisted round. 
Sometimes so people are so busy trying to think of themselves less highly than they ought to think that they just end up thinking about themselves all the time. And they're thinking about themselves so much that they don't really think about anyone else at all. And you can become so self-obsessed in your humility that it actually turns into a form of arrogance because you just think about yourself and think about yourself and think about yourself and, oh, I'm sure I'm much worse than them. And I'm, I mean, how does that make everyone feel? Does that really bless everybody? I think we've just got to come back to the Lord. God's heart for us is just so great. Let me just remind you of those verses because I've referred to them. Romans 12, verse 3. I'm mentioning them because if you haven't looked them up recently, it's just good to underline them in your Bible. And if you've got a Bible that you don't like to underline, go and buy one that you don't mind underlining and keep the one you don't want to underline for special occasions. Romans 12, verse 3 says this, I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. You're meant to be thinking about yourself through the eyes of faith. Did you see that? It's, it's as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now that's not pride to look at yourself through the eyes of faith. It's actually to begin to accept God's perspective for your life, but also for the lives of other people. Because whilst you are busy thinking God is lifting you up, his heart is also to lift other people up as well. Philippians 2 verse 3. The whole Philippians 2 passage, of course, is incredibly powerful when we're thinking about how our lives impact on others and how we ought to live. But it says this, in verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. You'd be amazed how many things would be in a different perspective if we just remembered there's collateral. I've got to solve my problem. Yeah, but not just for your sake for everybody else's sake as well. And whilst you're solving it for everybody else's sake, maybe let everybody else play a part in helping solve the problem. Self-sufficiency is not necessarily a virtue. There is a place for bearing one another's burdens. Now, now say, well, I know it says that we're to, each one should bear his own burden, but have you noticed how close those two verses are together? They're almost next to each other in Galatians 6 is because God is saying that these two things have to apply together. And it's not pick a mix. It's not, well, I'm going to go with the, I'm going to bear all my burdens and, you know, someone else can do the other. No, we've both got to have that. There is a place for bearing your own burdens, but there's also a place for realising that we're part of a body and that when we're looking at how and to get the victory, and particularly when we're looking at the addictions thing, we're going to need one another. We're going to need one another to get the breakthrough. God wants us to be strong. What we do affects other people. But we can let other people have a positive effect on our lives. Let's lose that isolationism and let's see what God is really doing. If we just come back to that passage, I want us to really see the precision of the prescription that Jesus brings. 
Luke 18 again, verses 13 and 14. This is what it says. Tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, now this is the, this is the prescription coming here. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I remember the first time I saw the Jesus film, I was in a little village in Pakistan and uh, it was late at night and I was really tired. I'd preached four times, I think, that day already and they wanted me to preach another long sermon and they told me off for preaching so short but hey, I thought they were tired too. But they were watching the Jesus film and we were watching it in Urdu, which is interesting because it was dubbed. So, you know, sometimes Jesus' lips had stopped moving long before he'd finished speaking in Urdu. And uh, sometimes, you know, the speaking carried on long after his lips finished moving. That's the problem with dubbed films. But the impact of this film, as we were sitting in this little area in this village, watching it just projected onto a wall, was amazing. I mean, for a start, it was much more like the situation that the film would originally have taken place in. You know, this was the animals you were tripping over and, uh, you know, the, the animals are brought into the courtyard at night. Um, you know, sometimes we think that Jesus must have been in a stable. Listen, they bring all the animals into the courtyard at night. You don't need a stable. You know, you're just in the courtyard <laughs> and you've got the buffalo and you've got everything else in with you. And if they put the beds out for the night, which they often do because it's cooler to sleep outside, you're sleeping with the buffalo sort of right by your bed. It's the way it is. So it felt very much as if we were in it. But the thing that amazed me was that every time Jesus won an argument, they all cheered and shouted. It was as if like they'd never ever seen this before. Every time Jesus did a miracle, he got a round of applause, you know? Everyone was so excited. You know, when he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, way he's won the argument, you know? There was just so much excitement. Now, I did see the film in, in the cinema in Beckenham and the response was just nowhere near the same. <laughs> but I don't think when Jesus said this, even though it was a very clear put-down of the Pharisees, that everyone would have immediately cheered and clapped. Because I think everyone would have been so shocked. Because the whole assumption was that the Pharisees were living at a level of religious standard that other people couldn't attain to. They went around sort of saying, well, look at this, you know, you can't fast as often as I do. You don't pray as long as I do. You don't wear your phylacteries as broad as I do. You don't, you know, it was just sort of... But the thing was, all their standards were outward standards. There was no measure of what was going on in the heart. And so... Jesus comes up with these statements that, you know, you'd have thought might have won a cheer and a round of applause, but they were so shocking, it would have just stunned everybody. Of course it would have stunned the Pharisees, but I think it would have stunned the rest of the crowd as well. This story is just such a hard-hitting thing when you understand the culture of the day. 
I mean, you're, you're listening to the story, and you can think, oh, I can just imagine this. There's the Pharisee, he's standing there, he's praying, I'm not like this, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I see that. And there's this tax collector, oh yeah, tax collector, banging away on his chest, no, I'm not worthy, and all the rest of it. And then Jesus, Jesus himself says this about these two characters in the story. This one, the tax collector, he goes home justified. The other one goes away with nothing. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I don't think we can understand the shock of this story, but the shock is part of the prescription. (laughs) This is Jesus saying, wake up, wake up. If your problem's pride, I'm going to shock you. Because whilst you're thinking you're it, I'm going to come up with the most despised, hated, loathed person in society, present them in a way that you don't even think is acceptable to come into the presence of God with your head down, beating on your chest when you're meant to stand up and do your recitation bit. And I'm going to tell you that the man you despise is the one that God honours. And he's the one that's going home justified. I tell you, it shakes you up, doesn't it? It thinks, God, you're really getting on my case here. You're trying to show me a totally different way. Dull consciences need conviction. John 16, 8 speaks about when the comforter is come, He will convince the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. When Jesus referred to the Comforter, he said, I will send you another Comforter. The word that he uses there for another is the word that means another like myself. I've already referred to the fact that men don't necessarily spend so long in front of the mirror perhaps as they should. Hmm? But I've also noticed that there can be other differences as well. When men go out and buy a pair of shoes, they're always looking for a pair exactly the same as the ones that they've just worn out. In fact, the only reason they're going to buy another pair is that, unfortunately, they've worn these for so long and had them repaired so often that, really, they need another pair of shoes. But when they say, I need another pair of shoes, They want another pair that's just like the ones that have fallen apart. Now, it's not always like that, because I know that there are fashions where people can go out and buy another pair of shoes, and it's a bit like um, a certain president's wife, Imelda Marcos, who had so many shoes. She didn't need another pair of shoes, but she always thought she needed another pair of shoes. And she didn't need another just like the one that she had. She needed another pair that was completely different from anything that she'd got. You see? So another can mean another of the same kind or another of a completely different kind. But when Jesus said, I'll send you another comforter, he actually used the word that meant another of exactly the same kind. 
So he's saying that when the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment, he won't be doing it in any way that is different from the way that I've been doing it amongst you for these last three years. When I've told that story and pinpointed that problem just like that, that's conviction. Now, if the devil comes along and starts having a go at you, that's condemnation. It won't get you anywhere. Condemnation will get you written off. Conviction gets you written in. It gets you through the problem. (laughs) Conviction points to the future. Condemnation always looks to the past. And Jesus comes with conviction and he tells this story and he brings conviction with the story. Over and over again in the Gospels, you see people just don't know what to say when Jesus has spoken, because his word goes right to the root of it. That's what we need today. We need more of the conviction of Jesus and less of the condemnation of one another, the devil. We need that conviction. We need more of the Holy Spirit's accuracy. We want the precision of the prescription. There are a lot of people out there who want to break free from all kinds of temptation, but the prescriptions that they're being given I just like hitting a nut with a sledgehammer. It doesn't have the precision and the conviction. Sometimes we try and bring conviction into people's lives and we just don't do anything other than bring more condemnation. We need the precision of the prescription. And let's realise this, that we don't just listen to the story. Dull consciences need conviction and we need to hear the words of the story, but we also need to look at the life of the storyteller. When Jesus told this story, it's obvious to me that there was no arrogance in Jesus. He was equal with God, and yet he didn't grasp at that equality. Philippians 2, he humbled himself, even to death on the cross. When it talks about someone going away justified, in the end, the only way any of us go away justified is because Jesus took our place on the cross. That's the level of his humility. He is our pattern. He who had every right to go through life almost in a state of presumption never presumed anything. If there was any person who never needed to pray, it was Jesus. And yet he prayed more than any other person. Because his whole heart was set in that humility. We don't just have the words of Jesus, we have the the pattern of Jesus. Someone once said something which I, I still am unpacking in my thinking. It's just a throwaway comment. They said that the crown of thorns is big enough and sufficient enough for anyone who is tempted to be big-headed. So if you're someone who just suffers from swollen head, you know, more important, just remember there's a crown of thorns. And that crown of thorns, what does it do? Every time you get big-headed, the thorns just remind you. (laughs) Come back down to size, boy. Jesus wore a crown of thorns for you. 
And he could wear that crown of thorns because there wasn't an atom of big-headedness in him. But some of us need to be wearing a crown of thorns to remind us that that kind of arrogance and big-headedness has no place in the kingdom of God. But we also have his sacrifice. We don't just have his pattern. Do you know, I tell you this much, sometimes people amaze me. They think that just if we have the pattern of Jesus, it's going to solve everything. Do you know, if God had wanted to frustrate everybody on earth to the ultimate degree, he would have just sent Jesus to live amongst us. Now think how frustrating that would be. You're trying to get your head around it. You think, oh no, that wouldn't be frustrating at all, that would be lovely. Well, it's lovely until you try to live like him. For three years, the disciples had Jesus in their midst. The pattern was in their midst. And because he was there, there was perfection. No, there wasn't. They were still themselves. There was a certain amount of control and influence that came from Jesus, but they could still have arguments about who was the greatest. They could still fall out with one another on the way. Because pattern is not enough. If you try and live like Jesus every day, without the power of Jesus in your life, you're just going to get frustrated. If you look at Jesus and say, well, he was never proud. He was never cynical. You're absolutely right. But you've got to find a way to tap into that power. It's not just the pattern. You've got to have the power that enables you to benefit from the pattern. And that's why God didn't just send Jesus to live amongst us. Jesus lived amongst us and then he died for us. And in dying for us, he was able to release the power of God into our lives. Because in dying for us, he dealt with the sin that was separating us from God. And the Holy Spirit's energies became a reality on the inside of us. God was able to make his dwelling place in us because there had been a transformation and um, a transaction because of the cross. We need to see these things. There is a way of escape with every temptation that comes. God will always provide the way of escape. He will not let you be tempted beyond that which you're able to endure. Seems like it sometimes. But when the temptation to rise up in pride and to put down another brother comes, just remember that crown of thorns. When the temptation to rise up in pride and put someone else down comes, just remember that Jesus died that you might live. Just remember that you've got the Holy Spirit's energies that you can access and you can use the Holy Spirit's power to live a different kind of life. Just remember that you have an advocate with God, Jesus Christ the righteous, who speaks for us. In fact, he ever lives to make intercession for us. And to add to that, in Ephesians, when it says that you're blessed with every blessing in spiritual places, the actual word for blessing there is well-speaking. And you are blessed with every well-speaking in heavenly places because Jesus is speaking well of you in heaven right now. That's what an advocate does. Speaks well of you. 
You have all of these things. God is so good. This is why we can go away justified. We need to access all the provision that's there because of the new birth. Humility is the entry point into the kingdom of God, but it's also the birthright of every child of God. Do you hear what I'm saying in that? I'm saying that, yes, you do have to humble yourself in order to get in, but once you've humbled yourself, God gives you that gift of humility that you might continue in humility. It's not a case of I need to make myself small to get in and then, praise God, I can be as big as I like. I'll humble myself for the moment and then in due time he will exalt me. Listen, when is due time? The due time is in his hands. That's why it says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that in due time he might exalt you. This idea of, oh, I humbled myself for a moment and now I'm lifting myself up. Forget it. Forget it. It's not your place to lift yourself up. When God says, stand, stand in his presence. When he raises you up, stand in his grace. And when you're standing in his grace, don't despise the person over there or think that you're standing because of some religious act that you're doing. You're standing because God is good. And that person will also stand because God is good. It would be wonderful to see pride and cynicism eradicated from the the body of Christ. But also to see everyone come to Christ so it can be eradicated from the world. This is part of God's scheme, part of God's plan. Salvation is not just some academic thing. You know, we all have to sign up to the new birth because that's the way to get to heaven. No, we all have to come to be born again because it's the way to live on earth. Yes, it is the passport to heaven, but it's also the key to transformation right now. God wants us to live effective lives. God wants us to break free from temptation. The temptation to pride and cynicism, it's pervasive. And when we are cynical, we put people down and it's painful. But if we think beyond the simplistic interpretations that we have, if we think about the collateral of how it affects other people, and we think about the specific correctives that Jesus brings, where Jesus can come and pierce our pride with a word in an instant, we need that kind of conviction. I'm so glad that God's hand rests upon us. And right now we can humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And just let him decide when the due time is. Maybe it won't be in this life. Maybe the due time for exaltation is a long way off. (laughs) And they're in glory. Well, that's fine. That's fine. I just would rather go home justified. And that's not something to boast about. Because what is justification? It's a legal acquittal. It's a gift from God. It's not something that we deserve. We deserve condemnation, but he gives us his conviction that we might go free. I want to pray. This is just the beginning of a series. It's just some pointers along the way. But you can take some of these. In whatever situation you are, you can remind yourself, there's God's provision there for me, not just his pattern, but he died for me. His life's laid down. His spirit's poured out. His advocacy in heaven is being accepted right now. I can gain perspective on my life 
The word of God is there as a mirror. I can look into the word. I can remember, forget my simplistic interpretations, let the word of God speak back to me. It might be, it's a little bit more complicated than I expected, particularly when I'm looking at other people's problems. Don't just give out that kind of trite answer. But just realise how wise Jesus was in all his dealings. Realise the collateral. Realise the specific nature of the corrective. Rejoice in that 1 Corinthians 10.13 statement. Take it to heart. And then just be glad that you can humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I tell you, if the crown of thorns is tight enough for your big head... (laughs) my big head then the hand of God is heavy enough for your arrogant spirit and my arrogant spirit if we stay under that hand of God that is sufficient to keep down even what was it my, my grandmother used to say she'd been a Salvation Army officer in Yorkshire she picked up some Yorkshire expressions one of them was you're getting a bit risey she used to say to us which just meant that we were getting a bit full of ourselves. We were rising up. But listen, the hand of God is heavy enough to deal with the most rising of young men. <laughs> God can deal with it. Let's just pray. Father, I want to thank you for the simplicity of your word. These things are just amazing. It's like the simplicity of the word reveals the complexities of our hearts and our situations and brings solutions. Lord, as we come before you tonight, Lord, we realise that for some of us, this just hasn't been a look into your word. It's been a, a look into the mirror of your word with realities being reflected back into our lives. For some of us, there has been a, a speaking into our hearts Some of us have had to face the fact that even as we've been listening to this message, the Holy Spirit has been saying to us, your attitude towards that person and that person needs to change. Your attitude towards yourself needs to change. You're not just cynical about others, you're cynical about yourself. God's saying, change these things. And right now he's here to do that. Lord, if there's anyone in our lives that we have that pharisaical attitude towards. Lord, do something now. Lord, I'm just going to pray, Father, that that despite all of our negativity towards those people, right now, Lord, you're going to send them away justified. Lord, that you're going to lift them up, that you're going to make them stand. No matter how many times we've tried to kick their legs from underneath them, Lord, make them stand. And Lord, change our hearts change our hearts. Lord, there are people that we need to release into your hands right now because our attitude towards them have been wrong. Some of us here, husbands, had wrong attitudes to our wives. Thank you that I'm not like her. Maybe wives have had wrong attitudes to their husbands. Thank you that I'm not like him. Maybe it's been a work colleague. Maybe it's someone else. Father, just deal with us now. Touch the pride in our hearts. 
deal with the cynicism that can creep into our lives. Let the mirror of your word reflect realities back, but also let it bring hope into our heart. Let it be the, the law of liberty that we're looking into. And Lord, let this moment of your truthfulness be a moment that sets us free. I want you just now as we're praying, just uh, first of all, let other people go free. People that you've had a negative attitude towards, just let them go free. You are not their master. (coughs) To their own master, they stand or fall. And they will stand because the Lord is able to make them stand. Let those people go as unto the Lord. And then put yourself in the same position. You let yourself go as unto the Lord. Be under his hand. Feel that hand of his security and his love resting on you. He doesn't hold us down to suppress us. He holds us down to protect us, sometimes from ourselves, from our ignorance, but he does it all in love. Lord, we just want to thank you for ministering to us in these moments. Lord, take this series and use it in our lives and in the lives of others to set people free, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.